Welcome to the Candid Care Podcast, brought to you by M3. I'm Sarah Kukula, Director of Senior Living and Social Services at M3. And I'm Marlia Coiler-Grayhek, Risk Manager at M3. Each episode of the Candid Care Podcast promises to challenge your current thinking about the long-term care industry and introduce concepts to improve your organization and advance the field. From executive risks to key strategies, we'll approach each topic from multiple angles and invite leaders with unique perspectives to join in the conversation. Please be advised this podcast and the recommendations throughout are not intended as legal advice and should not be used as or relied upon as legal advice. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Candid Care Podcast. Today we have with us attorney Bob Samandel with Von Vriesen and Roper, where Bob is a shareholder and chair of the labor and employment section. Bob has over 30 years of experience advising clients on a wide range of employee benefit, labor, and employment law issues. Bob, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. So let's get into today's topic. So with the workforce crisis that healthcare is facing, particularly in the senior living and social services industry, there is an opportunity to expand the available labor pool by recruiting foreign workers. Recruiting foreign workers and caregivers has been a practice for quite some time, but now is really in the spotlight as a viable option for organizations to chip away at that workforce shortage. And more and more organizations are looking to this as a strategy, but it can certainly be overwhelming and confusing if you don't know where to start or what is all involved. So we wanted to take some time today to really shed some light on this process. Bob, I'd love to turn it over to you. If you could just start us off by briefly walking us through the process of bringing over workers from other countries, what are the options and, and time parameters that we're looking at? Sure. There's actually a couple pieces to this. I've got a number of long-term care facilities that are bringing the people over, as you've indicated. But there's also a number of folks that are outsourcing the work to foreign countries as well, actually hiring people or utilizing, quote-unquote, independent contractors for those foreign sitest employees. If I were to give any upfront advice to people as far as a couple thoughts for employers to consider when delving into the international worker market, number one, get help from a professional. What we have seen is that a number of the individuals who are the source of the foreign workers, A, do not understand the law, or B, don't care what the law is. And they're going to provide employees no matter what comes its way. So get somebody who knows what it is that they're dealing with and how to address it. Secondly, document your arrangement. We've had a number of situations where individuals have been employees of the company brought over, their tour has completed, they return, and then that they asserted employment status from their foreign country, which required the employer then to contribute for health and for pension and for other benefits and obligations, which they did not anticipate, nor did they intend. Under get your agreement in writing and understand where it is. And lastly, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And we need to be very careful about the arrangements that we're going to be engaged with, what's going to work, and uh, 
where we're going to be having more difficulties. When I see foreign workers, I see them in one of two scenarios. One, we're bringing foreign workers over. Right now, the, the hot spot is the Philippines, bringing people over to work within the U.S. environment for a limited period of time or for longer periods if we're looking to sponsor an H-1B or something along those lines. Then the other part of it is the outsourced work, whether we've got independent contractors in the foreign country or we're actually hiring people as our employees in that foreign country to perform medical records, data transcription, whatever else it may happen to be, we, we see that as a very viable option in supplementing our workforce to get the people that we want on a longer-term basis. I think that's really interesting, Bob, especially the remote workers in these other countries. I think in the healthcare industry, we don't necessarily think about incorporating foreign workers in that capacity. So it's interesting, the examples of the medical records and other positions that you can utilize too, because we talk about from a workforce shortage perspective is how do we become more efficient in our organizations and outsource some of these things that maybe don't need to be in-house. So that seems like a viable option too. But like you said, it needs to be done carefully and with professional assistance. Yeah. And as I said, the Philippines seem to be the hot spot right now. For a while, it was we were seeing a lot of recruiting from the Caribbean, Dominican Republic, Haiti, some of the, the challenged countries. Puerto Rico was also supplying U.S. citizens to U.S. entities. But we just need to be careful that when we're looking at these programs, A, is it a U.S. territory where we may have greater flexibility in bringing them in? Or do we need to look at a temporary visa program of some sort to bring that worker on board and then evaluate which of the, the alphabet soup of visa options are we going to go with? I recently saw a case too, I think it was from last year, but speaking of the Philippines, it was a case from Philippine nurses against a recruiting agency, as well as two nursing homes with a settlement of over, I think, $3 million that they came here. And once they arrived, they weren't paid their required prevailing wages and they had to pay back $25,000 if they left, which was in violation of I think the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So just again, right. goes to your point of you, you do need to be very careful in how you're setting this up and utilize professional assistance. Yeah, the case you're referring to is out of the Eastern District of New York. And it was a situation where they looked at this as a form of human trafficking. The critical aspect for every employer, we've seen thus far from the Philippines are that some of the people on the ground that are transporting the individuals to the United States very loosey-goosey as far as what the arrangement is. And there isn't a clear understanding as to how they're getting here, what their rate of pay is going to be, what the expectations and obligations are. And then we run into situations where unscrupulous attorneys, quite frankly, are looking to take a situation which may be innocent in and of itself. It may be an effort by employers to really give the employee the best of all worlds that turns into something ugly. For example, you're providing housing for the individual where they can stay at your facility. You've got a wing dedicated to them or a floor, and it works out just fantastic. But you're not providing with a vehicle, and you're not, there isn't local transportation for them to get around to go to town and go shopping or a night out or anything else. What we're seeing is that is being construed by federal agencies or state intervention 
as being a, a way for employers to lock them in and to have this indentured servant as a part of the workforce. It's critical that if you are going to be going into these arrangements with foreign workers coming here, incorporate into your DEI process, your diversity, equity, inclusion process, information as far as how you treat dignity and respect and integrity as it relates to all employees and incorporate that into this, this individual being brought to you. The case that we were talking about, the uh, Prop Nursing Employment Agency, was a joint employer issue, which goes to whose person is it? If it's the temporary service employee uh, that we're dealing with, that we're just paying a fee for it, that may not change your liability as a primary employer for the individual, since joint employment is the thing that people want nowadays in identifying responsibility for the ultimate user of the service. So be careful of that. Yep. Great advice. So Bob, if I'm a provider and I'm just curious, I want to know the basic steps start to finish of, okay, I contract with someone, I have my labor attorney involved. What next? What is that process of working through immigration? And what do I have to do as a provider? Or does immigration take care of that for me? What is that process of getting that person here? Yeah, it depends upon your relationship with your third-party provider. The entity that we're working with will many times say, they're going to get on the plane this afternoon, they're coming to you, and they'll be there by tomorrow morning. That's not as the way it really works. What we need to identify first and foremost is what is our contractual obligation with a third-party provider and what is the agreement as it relates to the employee. Again, front-end documentation as to where we are. Once we've identified and defined what the scope of the employment relationship is going to be, or it's not going to be, if it's going to be a temporary service, bring them over, and then we're going to be utilizing them in our workforce. Maybe we've got interpreters that we have to have on the ground to assist in communications with the individual out of the box. What are our employment forms that we need to consider? But even before we get that far, what is the visa that they're coming over on? There are as many visas as you can identify consonants and vowels that we deal with. Is it an H-1B that we're working in a specialized field of knowledge that we, let's say that we have a PT person coming over, or we've got a cardiology interventionalist, something along those lines. Or are we talking about really what seems to be the way to go, the visa waiver program, where we're able to identify individuals from up to 40 different countries that are participating in the program, and we can have them come over and work for short stints of time. Is this a business visitor? Do we have a foreign parent, for example, Sweden or Switzerland, that is coming over to come here for training or for educational purposes that may end up with a B visa, a B1 visa to, to deal with? If we're hiring this individual, does this become an intercompany transferee within our organization that we're looking at an L visa for purposes of bringing that person over? Are we talking about summer travel? Are we talking about somebody who is a H2B eligible person who is here really on a temporary seasonal basis in work that is other than agricultural? So you've got to define which pot I'm going to be cooking out of for purposes of identifying what my responsibilities are going to be. 
once you've identified the applicable visa, then there are the forms, there are the governmental filings, there are the, the compliance issues. We have a number of folks that say, I'll bring somebody over and I'll have them work here for a short period of time, maybe under a visa waiver program. But then if I really like them, I'll just keep them around for a couple extra years after that. And we'll go for a H-1B or something like that. It's not the way it works. So you really do need to not only think through what your short-term employment objective is, but also what your long-term objective is. If you're looking to sponsor somebody through a H-1B, it's going to be a different approach than if you're looking to go through the visa waiver program. And then also to be considered in this, are there children? Are there spouses? All those individuals, are they coming along as well? which may impose, again, whether the employer is going to help with it or it's going to be the employee's responsibility or the temporary help agency, an H-4 visa, which uh, may allow the spouse or unmarried children to join you in the United States. So you've got to figure out up front short-term objectives, mid-term responsibilities, and long-term obligations to really be prepared as we go through the visa war in getting these things pulled together. And there is some barriers right now with the federal government limiting some of these visas. Is that right? Yeah, there are. It's interesting that the the H-1Bs are always rather difficult. You get into a lottery, hopefully you get picked. But the H-2B, which is the temporary slash seasonal other than agricultural, they're adding additional positions right now that are eligible to come through. I think that Congress identifies 66,000 as far as available, but I think they added in another 33,000 for the second half of the fiscal year for 2023. I think that there is pressure right now in trying to find these workers, and there are a lot of different opportunities to mix and match to identify that short-term need. But again, I do encourage folks really understand how long this person is going to be here. Because at the end of the day, if you're keeping people past their authorized work time, you're really putting yourself in harm's way with the federal government. Thanks for that, Bob. So what are the other potential legal risk considerations from an employment perspective when bringing over foreign workers? Obviously, we're incorporating someone who maybe of a protected class or speaking a foreign language or maybe need some different religious accommodations. What are the risks that employers need to consider there? It's really no different than your workforce right now. The biggest challenges we have once we've overcome the immigration issue and dealt with Homeland Security concerns is the traditional employment setting. If you've got individuals who are non-English speakers, it becomes more of a practical consideration as opposed to a legal consideration. We need to identify how we're going to make this work. You may be told that the individual that's coming your way is fluent in English. Fluent English is a bit of a misnomer as it's based upon the judgment of the individual who is interviewing the person and whether in fact uh, their English is better than the interviewer in that particular process. So we've got to identify that you may need translators you may have somebody in-house who can help you with that translation. But again, do take that in consideration because if they're working outside of their regular shifts, they're sticking around, they're helping that individual. For your employee who is your translator, 
you're going to be paying the regular hourly rate for that time, which may involve overtime for that individual. The workers who are being brought to you uh, are going to be subject to the same wage and hour obligations that you have here in the United States. They need to be paid at least minimum wage. They need to be paid time and a half for hours over 40, unless you're working in 880. Uh, then you're going to follow that particular responsibility. You've got to identify other issues that would be involved with Title VII, pregnancy discrimination, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. All of those obligations come into play. And again, dropping back to the DEI issue, I think that a robust program for the employer and experience in dealing with those issues is very important. If somebody comes to us from a religious accommodation obligation, understand what your obligations are and what they're not. You may not be familiar with a particular religion or the religious practices that are associated with it. And because you don't get it, doesn't mean that you don't need to comply with it. And what we've seen with a number of our Muslim individuals who have come over when we're dealing with them in the employment work setting, we need to identify what the obligation is. And there are different scopes of responsibility as it relates to any religious group, whether you're Catholic, Lutheran, whatever it's going to be. And Muslim is no different. You may need to provide additional accommodation, which may be prayer periods. You may need to have a separate room for them to have their prayers in. Don't just say no. And go through the accommodative process to identify, is it a hardship? Engage in the discussion. And if it is a hardship that you're not going to be able to accommodate, then yes, you can say no, but be prepared for the pushback that may come along with it. You also may run into situations as it relates to vaccinations and other types of medical prophylactic approaches that are taken by employers. The flu shot, for example, you may require that for your employees. And you may have an individual who has never had anything and you're trying to get caught up on what the obligations are under applicable state law, what your particular policies are, and how do you get there in the most efficient manner that's going to be available to you. If you are bringing individuals of color into your work environment, and maybe at this point in time, that is foreign to your workplace, I think that there is an important aspect of employee training that comes into play here and also supervisory training because there, there's a lot of unspoken bias in workplaces that it's not overt, you're not being called uh, names and things like that, but it's the isolation and other aspects of bias that come into play that can really harm you. Now, we also need to consider the National Labor Relations Board. Whether you're a union or not, it doesn't make any difference. The National Labor Relations Board protects employees in the exercise of their rights in union and non-union facilities alike. So if you have somebody who's being disciplined for speaking Spanish in the workplace, be very certain that you've got a legitimate basis for going there because this may be a situation where individuals are conversing in their native tongue to address terms and conditions of employment. And if you discipline them or you fire them or take other corrective action, this may, in fact, be a violation of the National Labor Relations Act and be viewed as a chilling effect on their Section 7 rights, which will bring you into liability with that individual. Even though the individual is not a U.S. citizen, even if they are an illegal immigrant to the United States, 
they are protected under the laws of the United States, and you may have obligations to pay them for time work or benefits not received or whatever the damages may be, uh, despite their lawful or unlawful status here as a worker in the United States. Be careful in your plan and make sure that your human resources people have had those conversations with your supervisors. And this is a great topic for in-services to talk about integration and the whole idea of DEI and other opportunities to not discriminate against individuals in the employment setting. Yeah, I think this all really speaks to the fact that getting the foreign workers here into your care communities is one thing, and it's a completely other and just as important thing to successfully integrate them into the care community. It's not just, okay, they're here, the position is filled. There's many other considerations and planning that needs to take place to help them be successful once they are here, both for that employee and for you as the employer. Like you mentioned, think about how you're planning to educate your current workforce and also the residents and their families, too. We talk a lot about expectation management. Is it English as a second language? What are those cultural differences? So incorporating your residents and their families into that conversation, too. Think about how you're going to be welcoming them into your community. Can you do a buddy system or a mentor system to help them along the way? What's your training plan for these individuals? How to communicate what you need to with those language barriers? Can the orientation information be in their primary language? Can we utilize a translation app? Love what you mentioned about the DEI program. What a perfect opportunity to tap on this if you already have one. Or if you don't already have one, what a great time to look at establishing some formal efforts around DEI before these individuals arrive. Because we do have some time, right? Like Like you said, this is not a overnight process. This is what we're seeing one to three years before these individuals actually get here. So you have time. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You raised the point as it relates to families and the residents. Yeah. That's critical. It's something that a lot of employers will overlook because I'm so focused on doing it right by the current employees and the, the prospects, but we do need to consider the families. We Right now, we have situations where families feel that you're talking about me behind my back and I don't know what you're saying. And we get complaints along those lines. We always need to remember that this is the resident's home, but we need to find a way to communicate with the families and the residents that these individuals are here to help. And the paranoia that comes along with not understanding needs to be overcome. And I I do believe that you're right. There is an educational requirement for families and residents alike to embrace the visitors to our workforce and make them a part of our community. Mm -hmm. Yep. The organizations that we have seen do that piece have been, I would say, especially successful in incorporating foreign workers. I think it's also important, too, that organizations who do bring over these workers, they do have some skin in the game in terms of the social determinants of health side of things for these individuals and their needs out in the community. Like you mentioned, the housing piece, childcare, transportation, making those cultural connections out in the community. So organizations need to be aware that they probably are going to have a hand in that, whether that's guiding or actually providing the services in the housing situation and or childcare if those services are offered. So again, obviously working with council on on those pieces as well, because you can get into some challenges with that. But Bob, anything additional in terms of the cultural side of things once we get them over here in our organization? The cultural side of it is really the most challenging part of it because the employer and the employees 
need to do their homework before the person comes in. Because we talk about the work, we focus on the work that comes along with it, but it's that mode of dress, the sanitary issues, food issues. A lot of these types of things are things that we're not accustomed to, and we need to understand what to expect from these workers and ease them into what our culture may be. We're not trying to scrub their culture from what they're doing here. That's never going to happen, nor should that happen. But we need to be sensitive to what the expectations of the employee is and to understand where those challenges lie and provide that bridge to integrate them into our workforce and not destroy your culture that you've worked so hard to achieve with the challenges of the integrated worker. This has been wonderful, Bob. I think in closing for me, I just want to reiterate that we talked about a lot of things, right? So hopefully this helped shed some light, but now maybe you feel, oh my gosh, I have to think of all these things once I start this process. But just a reassurance, it is a commitment of time, planning, dollars that you invest into this process of incorporating foreign workers. But we've seen this be very successful when the proper time and attention is dedicated to this. And unfortunately, the workforce shortage does not seem to be going away in the future. So this will likely continue to grow as a strategy for employers. Absolutely. I think and there's a lot of good that comes out of this availability of individuals for employers. It's just a matter of do your homework and your homework as it relates to legal compliance, but also the homework associated with integration of the worker to your facility, to your workers and to your expectations in a successful outcome. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Candid Care Podcast brought to you by M3. Connect with us at m3ins.com for access to more resources, insight, and to join the conversation. 